Thank you for coming to my talk this morning um, on one of the biggest projects in my life, which is and was to write a book on digital ethics. And you know, when you start this project, the first question is, what is ethics? And when you start to think about it and read into it, you find a wonderful thinker who lived 2,500 years from now, Aristotle. And Aristotle had a concept about ethics that he called eudaimonia. Eudaimon eudaimonia is a state of well-being, a state of well-being that we as humans should strive for throughout our lives. Progress in the antique sense and ethics was about being a good person, growing through your life because you become generous, because you become courageous, because you become knowledgeable, because you become wise. This was what ethics was all about in the old times. And this was also what progress was about. And when you think about that, you have to ask, why do we think that progress is about giving citizenship to adults? I'm wondering about this question. How can we be so crazy? There seems to be a very strange belief in that everything that we invent that is new is automatically good, just because this doll is walking on digital, she's great, she's a better human. I think that we will never be able to progress if we don't understand our own history of thinking about progress and what it means to be a good person. And this man here on the slide, Albertus Magnus, played a very crucial role in our current thinking, which is that in the 13th century, he actually used for the first time the word innovation. Until then, as I said, Aristotle's thinking was the most important one. But he said, why don't we, you know, create progress through innovating, through bringing new things into the world? And the 800 years that followed him made that we think this way today. We invented the gunpowder, we colonized, we invented the clock, we invented the printing press, and all those in innovations, they made Europe and many parts of the world very rich. And so we thought, well then, new 
needs to be good, right? And now we are at a point where we also think that if we give up driving, that's good. If everyone runs around with headphones and Alexa and Siri speaking to you while you go on every path through the world, you are accompanied by virtual speech assistants, that's good. Perhaps humans should be replaced, that's good. Even my students now think that this is the future of thinking and teaching, that they get their courses in the bathtub. Now, I would say the following. I think that digital is very much like a good glass of wine. Yeah? It feels good, it adds to sociability, friendship, and so on. But there is a point where it's simply maybe enough. And I think that these past months, if not years, have shown us that there is potentially an overdoses, that there are problems, that we're drunk. Because we have 250 million bots on Facebook, we have Brexit, we have Trump, we have planes going down, and we are putting people to jail because of algorithms. And against this background, I'm wondering, and this graphic comes from my book, is where we are on this curve. We have digitalization, and what we strive for is progress. We want to have value creation for the good of people. But, in fact, it may be that we are at an inflection point, that we are not progressing anymore, but that we are regressing. And the question is, what can we do? What we need to understand is what is happening at that point. And you know what? I think that all of the negative events that we are currently observing are really just symptoms of one underlying reason. And that is the very nature of the digital fabric itself. My hypothesis in this talk is that by only fixing the symptomatic problems of the digital fabric, we stay at the surface of things and do not go to the very bottom of what we should be looking at. Because if we just fix the bias in judicial software, if we just fix the bug or the software system problems in the Boeing 737 MAX, do you really think that's the end of the story? Let me tell you what I mean by the digital fabric. And it's best to understand that if we look at all the fa other fabrics, properties and products that we have, they all have a nature. There is a difference between wool and polyester. There are great differences between foods. Now, we pick or harvest materials like grains, and we then process these materials and produce a new product with the help of machinery. Now, think about it. Analogously, we could say that we also 
encode bits and then process them through software with the help of hardware. And at any point in this chain, there can be quality problems with ethical import. And this is why we are obsessed with this. So many people these days, I don't know how you personally do it when you go to the stores, but I recently have started to look at nutrition labels. So many people are looking at this to try to understand what can they eat, what can they buy, what are the side effects of pharmaceuticals. In almost anything we consume, we want to know what's in the product and we then can take rational purchase decisions and we can also adapt our behavior wisely when using these products. And now, what do we know respectively about the digital fabric? Does anybody think about that? Now, in order to discuss this digital fabric, which is, you know, the other products are tangible. The digital, you think it's not there because it's intangible. But as I just said, of course it's there. We receive movies through it, for example. So let me try to approach this to show you what I mean by digital fabric and how value effects and ethical import actually come along as a result of that fabric. And for that reason, let me turn one more time to the physical world. So let me talk about wine. So a nice way, we know, for example, that the raw material in alcohol is ethanol, and that it is a light-burning, spicy-smelling liver poison, classified as a drug. And what we know is the absorb that the absorption rate and our liver function actually lead to, and this is important, to certain value effects. Because at a certain level of alcohol, we know from ourselves, what do we see? Sociability, talkativeness, relaxation, laxity, perhaps unfo unforeseen levels of generosity. And on the negative side, we see nausea, fatigue, loss of control, health problems, addiction. And this is why we put the level of alcohol on the bottle. Because if we see it, we know already that the vodka has a different, different implication than the beer, right? So we can behave towards that material. Philosophically speaking, and technically speaking, sorry for being a little bit uh, uh, academic now, is wine is a value bearer. At the physical layer, wine is a value bearer. And it sets free, it bears values such as health, generosity, friendship, and so on. And because it is a value bearer, it leads to these tipsy moments of friendship just as much as to violence. And again, analogously, what do we know about the digital fabric here? What's happening here? First, 
what technical dispositions does the digital have that makes it a value bearer? And second, what are the value effects? Systematically, systematically. Now, in my book, I say we have actually two categories. We have, first of all, relatively stable trades in the digital fabric that are coming in anything we consume that's digitally. And that is due to the very nature of bits and software. And there is a second group. These are self-made problems. Privacy, network latency, addictive hooked mechanisms in user experience design. This is, you know, we don't need to do that. We can get rid of it just by design. But there are also characteristics and properties like calories in the digital fabric that make that anything we see will always suffer from them that's digital. Which are those? It's only a start, but limited completeness, limited reliability, and high orderliness are three traits that you will see in anything that's digital. Let me try to explain these three. Limited completeness of the digital. This is a photograph from my own wedding. And you know when you are in a church, you have always all been in weddings, I presume. It's such a beautiful moment. And what makes, what gives meaning to us humans in such a situation are the values that we all share. So, for instance, me, of course, being very grateful that I finally found a husband, being in love, my husband, proud, hopefully, and thankful that I finally said yes. Our priest here in the back, who also smiles because he's a friend, friendship. And then, of course, this place, which was a thousand-year-old, very magic place. And now think about those values that are in the room here. Thankfulness, gratefulness, love, holiness, friendship, magic. And what do you think this chap sees here? What does this chap understand of the human world? Well, he has a camera system there. He sees couple, wedding, wedding dress cost, social class, geolocation, age, age difference, emotion one, positive. If he's a very advanced system, as most data is these days are looking for, He may be also having access to my pupillary dilation. He may have access to my uh, skin conductance data. And then he can say, well, it's an, authentic, it's an authentic smile. But how can he know about love, sympathy, and so on? Just because he sees me smiling? Perhaps computer scientists would say so. I'm not sure. Because perhaps I smiled because there was a cat running down the aisle. This was the reason why I smiled. It was a funny little thing. And perhaps his camera systems just didn't 
have access to that camera, and so he was interpreting it as my smile being happy about my husband. Well, I, to, to say the truth, the cat wasn't there, but, but the point that I want to get is that following. Think about sympathy and love. You look at someone, how often have you smiled at someone, not meaning it? Happened to you? You just wanted to be polite? Now the computer system will have the facial expression skills and everything, sees you smiling and thinks, oh, she likes that other person, there is friendship. But in truth, it's just politeness. How can the machine know it can't? Moreover, even if you know, took contextual data and tried to anticipate that this is husband and as a result of the fact that it's husband, then there must be love and sympathy. That would be the kind of rational reasoning machines do. Well, in fact, not in this wedding, but in generally, you can have a radiant smile, you look at another person in truth, your radiation comes because you've been thinking about a great date last night. How can the machine know? It can't. The thing is that machines have a very limited pixel intelligence that is very different from human intelligence. It will still try to understand the situation. It will reduce the input it receives and apply machine learning, looking for patterns that try to tell it what's really happening. And thereby, it converts reality into a limited set of patterns, and any digital program will do that, especially artificial intelligence. And by doing that, it will potentially, because it has no access to meaning, throw out information like the priest here. Why? Well, perhaps that algorithm, that artificial intelligence, was trained in Russia. In Russia, priests wear hats. And if the AI that was used in this context was trained in Russia, it would have probably cut out our priest here just because Russian AIs don't understand priests without head. So what I want to tell you here is actually two things. The first is that the digital fabric cannot ever capture the thickness and richness and value-laden reality of humans. It will always be incomplete in its understanding of reality and meaning. And the second is that it tries to derive meaning from what is there and thereby can horrendously distort and misinterpret what's really happening at the real basis of life. Now, in a wedding context, this is okay. But when you apply artificial intelligence in other areas, believing that the machine will tell you the truth about reality, this is completely wrong and we shouldn't do it. We need to be so humble when it comes to machine capabilities. And this is not only because some blacks are underrepresented in the historical data of the artificial intelligence, but because artificial intelligence generally, and statistical reasoning in particular, 
is as limited as I just illustrated. Let me continue with the wedding example. Digital machines do not only distort actual meaning due to pattern selection, that is irrelevant, but any data processing is error-prone. What do I mean by error-prone? So, the when a machine works, it needs data input. And the first challenge for a machine is that data that's coming into the machine is of very good quality, that it's not redundant, that it's timely, that, it is, that its syntax and semantics is correct, that it is consistent, that it is not falsely tagged. How often is this the case? Very rarely so. 50, Harvard Business Review published an article saying that in companies where we pay, people take really care of, of their systems, 50% of working time of knowledge workers is spent just running after trying to understand what the system is saying, trying to understand data. So data quality is a huge issue. But here comes another one. Software itself. Software is error-prone. When we develop systems for high-risk systems like aircraft, cars, health environments, the programmers are asked to program such that they don't have more than half an error for a thousand lines of code. Sounds good, right? Half an error for a thousand lines of code. The problem is that in autonomous cars, for instance, I found the number of 100 million lines of code. You know what that means? 50,000 errors in a self-driving car. So you want to sit in that car? Hmm. Personally, because of the error proneness, because of the low reliability of the digital fabric, I'm not at all surprised to see planes going down, to see trains stand still, to go airports not function anymore these days. I'm not surprised because these are all systems of one underlying problem, and that is the low reliability of the digital fabric. This is why it's my first candidate for DigiFacts. And I want to take you, take, that you take this away with you. Correctness. There, can be, there are many dimensions on which we should be starting challenging the digital fabric and do something very similar to what we do to our textiles and our pharmaceutical products or to our foods. We should be asking the IT industry to work towards quality criteria and to publish the degree of correctness and, for instance, also the error rate target that they give to their programmers and by that compete on quality. Quality, not by meaning super luxury quality, quality in the sense of being allowed to actually be in the market. I want to finish with a third and final dimension of the digital fabric that we shouldn't underestimate. That is its orderliness. Do you remember when the time was there, we were writing our handwriting? I put here on the right side my own handwriting as I prepared this talk. And it is a little bit crazy. 
And it doesn't feel so nice and orderly as the left side, which is from my, the same chapter from my book. Now, what is happening is that anything that comes digital is somehow pretty orderly and it looks so professional. Because it's the pixel intelligence, it's bits and bytes and megabytes and a couple of commands based in as a, existing in programming languages. As a result, this looks and feels professional and orderly. But this is a problem because when we see fake news online, it's also professional and it's also orderly. And as a result, we transfer our heuristics and think, oh, that must be right. And for this reason, another candidate for DigiFacts is the degree of authenticity that companies like Facebook could publish right away on their news feeds. And so this would be complementing the DigiFacts. Let's think about it. It's just a start. Let's think about it. And um, to finish, let me sum up. DigiFacts, or general understanding, of what the digital fabric really is about, how reliable it is, how correct it is, allows us to better understand the mirror through which we today approach and look at our world. So many times we judge about reality not because we are there, not because I'm an entrepreneur speaking to my employees. I look at digital mirrors, I look at statistics, I don't go to the country, I look it up through Facebook, I go through the digital mirror. And we need to understand to what extent this digital mirror is actually a blind mirror. And this we only understand if we know that, for instance, the judicial software is 45% correct and it has so many error programming targets or that it is um, not authentic. So, my last word on ethics and progress is that the true challenge is how, to, how we can get out of the matrix. Thank you very much. Sarah Spiekermann. We will be able to do it. We may have a beautiful time.